Connecticut had the highest uh, you know, percentage infection rate that we've had in three months as well. Just a series of offensive slurs, the N-word. People have become so emboldened, the people who engage in this type of activity. Joe Biden is a corrupt politician. Yeah, the FBI should be investigating. We're in a situation where we have 210 plus thousand people dead. And what's he doing? Nothing. He's still not wearing masks and so on. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel broadcasting remotely. In the mix, Vice President Joe Biden during his ABC town hall. And you heard the voice of the president trying to get the FBI to investigate his political rival. Also, 5th District Congresswoman Johanna Hayes discussing slurs lobbed at her during an online meeting with her constituents. That audio courtesy of the New England News Collaborative. And Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont gave us some news that wasn't totally unexpected. The rate of positive COVID-19 tests in Connecticut and their cases are continue to rise. We'll talk about what that means coming up on the panel today. I want to welcome back to the show Emily Munson, regional correspondent for Hearst Newspapers. She's based in Washington, D.C. Hi, Emily. Hi there. Also with us, Balasi Koo, associate professor of politics and government at the University of Hartford. Bilal, welcome back. Thank you so much and good morning. And Colin McEnroe is here, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. He's a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy, Emily, and Bilal. And you can join us, too, on Twitter at WNPR Wheelhouse. So the second and final presidential debate is tomorrow night. Will you be watching? After the last one, no one will judge you if you'd rather stick with watching football or maybe that classic slasher flick Friday the 13th, also airing at the same time on AMC. If you do watch the debate, this is the first time presidential candidate mics will be muted for parts of the debate. There will be two minutes of uninterrupted time at the beginning of each 15-minute segment. To enforce the rule, the candidate who does not have the floor will have his mic muted. That's from the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, Bilal, I wanted to you to talk about this uh, change and do you think it will be enough? <laughs> I, I guess we'll see, you know, how this works tonight or, or if, you know, both candidates, especially the president, will be yelling into the void because the mics are shut off. So, um, but I think it's a good move on the part of the commission to try to restore some kind of order to, you know, these presidential debates. Um, you know, for me, it was it was really interesting because I, I talked about the first debate with my students the day after, and they were in total shock. I mean, a lot of them are 18, 19 years old. This is the first time they've actually paid close attention to a presidential debate. And they were simply stunned by the sort of lack of um, any kind of civility at the debate. And they were really stunned by the behavior of the president. So hopefully this will be the kind of check he needs to uh, sort of calm him down to allow this to be a debate about issues and not just simply yelling and um, insult throwing. That's interesting. You're talking about your students watching the, the debate, Bilal, but overall, college students watching the presidential debate, is that something that's common or are they just getting the highlights the next day? You know, what's interesting is that at least in the classes that I talk to, and, and again, you know, the caveat, of course, is that I'm teaching courses on political science. And so there may be heightened interest in that sense. But from, from what I'm able to gather, students actually, you know, checked in on this and really watched this. I mean, a lot of people, in fact, you know, watch the presidential debate just in general. I know four years ago when I hosted presidential debate parties on campus, we had tremendous turnout from students and the media for that. So I think there is an interest out there among young people. Mm. Colin, what do you think about the mute button? 
Um, I, I think it's I, I agree with Bilal that it's something they probably had to do after the first debate. Uh, I mean, I think everybody watching was going, why can't they just turn off that guy's mic? Um, but um, I don't know how much it's going to help. Look, there's one thing that Biden and Trump agree on right now. Biden is winning. If this were a prize fight, Biden would be the fighter who's ahead on all the cards. We're into the late rounds. And Trump's only way to win is to land a knockout punch. Um, and, and Biden's only main strategy is to not get knocked out. But I mean, in a situation like that, where in fact the lead is so clearly held by one candidate, the incentive of the other candidate, particularly, you know, a guy like Trump, uh, is going to be to go for the kill. So the minute the, both mics are on for the more uh, free-flowing discussion after the two two-minute uh, statements at the beginning of each segment, um, you know, Trump is going to be going for the jugular. And in, in a way, the fact that he had to shut up for two minutes may ramp up his level of excitement uh, about when he can finally talk. I actually also feel you can make the case that they're doing him a favor. He hurt himself a lot with his interrupting, with his uh, belligerence uh, in in the first debate. Uh, anything that dials that back, uh, it's an impulse that he doesn't seem able to control. So anything that dials it back is a favor to him. Hmm. That's interesting, uh, Colin. Uh, Emily, we, we know that Trump's campaign director said that muting the candidates when it's not their turn to speak is, a quote, an attempt to provide advantage to their favored candidate. I'm just curious what your thoughts were on, on that statement and what Colin just shared. Well, it's important to remember that ahead of time, uh, the commission and the campaigns discussed the ground rules mm. for the debates and agreed upon those. And so from the commission's point of view, they're taking this additional step to try to enforce those ground rules because the first time around, um, as the moderator occasionally pointed out, Trump was violating some of those rules his campaign had agreed to by interrupting so much. Um, I don't think that President Trump is going to be very happy about being muted. And I agree with Colin that that's probably going to be evident in his debate uh, performance tomorrow. I expect him to be aggressive and to go after Biden uh, very sharply with probably some more personal attacks like we saw in the last debate as well. Mm. Colin, how did this play out uh, among Trump supporters that that first uh, horrific debate uh, with the constant interrupting? Uh, is this something that his base uh, actually enjoyed seeing? Or was there also distaste among uh, people who may have voted for him in, in 2016 that are like, why don't you just have a, a civil debate. I'm not sure I've seen any actual granular polling uh, on that. Um, what was clear was that overall, it, it wasn't a successful strategy. And, you know, really, uh, he's done everything he could possibly do to throw red meat to his base already. He doesn't need to do that anymore. To the extent that there are persuadables, flippables, people who are making their decisions right now, and, and this is right now, inevitably, when a race tightens up. And you'll see that numerically. The race is going to tighten up, not because people who are Trump faithfuls are defecting from him, but because his soft supporters might be flipping, but also because the people who really hadn't made a choice are making their choices now. And when that happens, typically the race does tighten up a little bit, just because you know some of them are going to decide, after all, that they, they can go to Trump. But things that he does that seem to you know, shatter decorum, things that he does that seem to make him seem less like a president and more like a petulant high school kid, 
could hurt him conceivably with the people that he needs right now. He's He's got a harvest a whole bunch of voters he doesn't have right now and probably doing his well-worn stuff is not the right way to go showing a different side of himself would be probably a, a more clever move i don't know if he's got it in him <laughs> Bilal, what do you think but you know what's what's interesting about this and and i can never quite put my finger on what exactly is trump's strategy about whether he's trying to actually win this race or whether he's just trying to at least have a legitimate sort of uh, contest in which he can emerge out of this um, and, and continue on with this sort of movement that he's trying to lead. Because on the one hand, I, I absolutely agree with Colin, but then at the same time, I think, you know, for that base, that sort of floor for Donald Trump, um, they love that debate performance. I mean, they love the aggressiveness. They love the spin in the eye of, you know, of the liberals and the media elite. Um, they love that combativeness with the, you know, with uh, the host, uh, the Fox News host. They love the way the president really went after Joe Biden. And so for, you know, even when you look at the poll numbers of people who thought, you know, he did well in the debate, it's somewhere near that floor that he has. And so um, I think Colin is right in the sense that, you know, in terms of building, you know, the sort of uh, support he needs in order to be able to win the election that that gets eroded by that kind of a performance, but it's red meat for the people who really love him and really support him because he's doing all of the things that they like. They hate the Democrats, they hate the elite media, they hate the academics, they, you know, they've got grievances and Trump personifies that and he personified them on stage quite well. Emily, you talked about uh, the, the rules that the campaigns agree upon. So what are we going to be hearing tomorrow night? What are the key topics that this moderator is going to hone in on? Well, one of the important topics is going to be COVID. And that's something that the president is uh, is weaker on than uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Um, and when we think about uh, Trump's debate performance and the kind of strategies that he could have used in the first debate, um, I always think about how President Trump had the biggest opportunity after he was diagnosed with COVID to come out after that and change his messaging around the virus um, and to show a softer side that might have attracted more moderate voters by demonstrating that he now had an understanding of what people were, had gone through with the virus and that he was going to change his tone on it. But we've already seen that he's not going to uh, change his tone on the virus. And so I, I would expect him um, to continue to be um, make comments that are somewhat dismissive of uh, mask wearing scientists, uh, Dr. Fauci, perhaps that's Fauci was his latest target um, over the past week or so. Um, so COVID will be an important topic. I know they're also planning to discuss uh, national security and I believe climate change as well tomorrow night. Yeah, Colin, the, the... I, I can just give you the list just to help out. Um, so far, subject to change, it's in this order. Fighting COVID-19, American families, race in America, climate change, national security and leadership. That's uh, uh, Kristen Wilker's uh, pre-announced list of topics which could get changed.
Colin, I wanted to go back to something we brought up the other week uh, after that uh, first debate. And really, what is the point of these debates now uh, when we think about, uh, you know, we have moderators saying it's not their job to do fact checking, but they want to get through a, a set list of questions. Uh, and related to COVID, we know the president has said things that are not true about this disease that he may continue to say uh, tomorrow and how damaging that is when we see cases rising across our country, including in our state. Right. So, you know, I think it's a good question. And I, I think Trump has posed it in a new way and made it a more urgent question, because obviously an event that a lot of people watch in what in which a lot of dangerously untrue information is disseminated is is, you know, I mean, in addition to maybe not being all that helpful to people and making their electoral choice is potentially dangerous for the country. Um, and um, I don't know what Kristen Welker, the moderator's plan for this is. But that particular part of the debate, it's the first part, and, and we know it's the part, as Emily was suggesting, that Trump kind of dreads the most. He just walked out of a uh, Leslie Stahl 60 Minutes uh, interview within the last 24 hours or so because he didn't like the COVID questions, uh, apparently. Um, you know, it's, it seems to me it's kind of incumbent. Uh, on Welker or somebody in real time to make sure that Trump doesn't say things that are dangerous for people to embrace and believe and get away with it. That somehow or other, you know, that's that's the place where you can hit the brakes. Most of the other topics, I think, you know, reasonable people may differ, but reasonable people may not really differ on the medical science uh, of a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, I think you're asking a really good question. What they're going to do about it, I couldn't tell you. Mm. Uh, Bilal, before we move on, who do you think will be watching tomorrow night? Obviously, people like us will watch, but in terms of the general public? <laughs> right. I, I think a lot of people will check in, probably not as many as um, watched the first time around. I think that, you know, was such a debacle that you know, it really turned off a lot of people. And so um, viewership for this this final debate may, in fact, be lower, but I think it's still going to be a lot of people who will show interest in it. I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see, you know, issues like uh, climate change being mm -hmm. raised. I mean, one of the things that my students talked about was the fact that that wasn't a, a real topic um, discussed the first time around. And it's something that they care very deeply about. Um, and there's a long list of other issues like uh, guns that a lot of young people care about today that won't be discussed as well. And so, but certainly the COVID-19 discussion will be something that I think many of them will tune into because it's affecting their lives and in ways that um, we will know in the years to come just what kind of damage, you know, this, this period we're trying to live through will do to the psyche and, and also just the way in which uh, young people who are living through this will approach things in the future. Hmm. Uh, speaking of Washington, uh, Emily Munson uh, has been reporting down there for about a year, and we know that speculation about positions of power is something that's talked about a lot in D.C. Uh, even before this uh, election uh, turnout uh, is known, we're hearing speculation that Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who sits on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, people are saying that he might be a contender for Secretary of State if Joe Biden wins the election. Uh, Senator Murphy has certainly made a name for himself in in terms of foreign relations uh, um, knowledge and talking about issues over the last few years. So what do you think about that speculation? I think uh, Politico and others reported it earlier this week. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Chris Murphy has definitely, Senator Chris Murphy has emerged as 
um, a, a voice, a progressive voice on foreign policy over the past several years. And he frequently um, gives public talks and um, uh, writes about his opinions on foreign policy in outlets, um, in magazines and, and blog posts. He serves on the Foreign Relations Committee um, and, and has been very engaged on issues in the Middle East as well as involving uh, Ukraine. Um, so it, it, it's hard to say how, how seriously to, to take these shortlist rumors. Um, I will say in the Beltway, um, sometimes these, um, when someone's name is, appears on a short list, it's because they are floating their own name for this position. <laughs> I'm not saying that Senator Murphy is doing that, but that does happen. Uh, they, you know, will, uh, try to get their name out there because they might have an interest. I did speak to Senator Murphy about his interest in a position in the Biden administration, specifically with the State Department. He told me that he loves his job and he didn't want to <laughs> discuss um, the possibility of taking a, a role in any specific capacity yet. That seems like the standard response that he's given in the past, Colin, especially when uh, people have said maybe he'll run for president. But if he were to get a role like this, that would certainly uh, help uh, his case as a, a younger lawmaker in the Beltway. Yeah, I mean, it would and it wouldn't. I mean, it's it's if you look at the old model for career advancement politically, this is probably something you don't do as a relatively young senator. You know, you might do it if you're Hillary Clinton, you kind of have a different pathway. Uh, you might do it if you're John Kerry, you know, where you're essentially kind of at the end uh, of your, your career. Um, Murphy, particularly if the Democrats were to attain control or a tie for control of the Senate uh, in this election, would uh, be have a higher visibility uh, than he does now. Um, and a real opportunity to to make a name for himself. On the other hand, I don't discount this uh, idea. I mean, he really has become very serious uh, about this. He is a significant voice on foreign policy. There kind of is something called the Murphy Doctrine at this point. He's laid it out in a 60-page uh, document that's on his uh, on his website. I believe it's called Rethinking the Battlefield. I've read some of it, but not all of it. Um, so, I mean, he, he has a stance. You know, he basically thinks we've got to get out of the business of long-term wars. We've got to um, take seriously the provision about Congress approving declarations of war. We need to divert money from our military budget to foreign aid and to diplomacy. He thinks we're understaffed at those levels. We don't spend enough money making friends. We spend too much money protecting ourselves against putative enemies. He thinks we have to take anti-corruption campaigns uh, seriously in these other countries. Uh, and uh, remember that during the impeachment hearings, among Democratic senators, uh, um, you know, Murphy was the guy who knew the most about Ukraine. So, you know, I mean, it's there. It's there in his <laughs> it's there in his resume, you know, that he would make. A, I think he'd make a very interesting secretary of state. His views are very similar to Biden's, uh, maybe a little bit more forceful uh, than Biden's can afford to be right now. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily write off this idea. Mm. Bilal, your take before we had to break. Sure. Actually, in, in reading the, the piece that we share from Political about this, I was at one level a bit surprised because I really see someone like Chris Murphy um, positioning themselves for a future run for the presidency. And I think the Senate gives him perhaps a Senate that's controlled by the Democrats 
gives him probably the best sort of perch to to become more even more of a national figure um, you know on this issue and and also I imagine for anyone who goes back who goes into the Secretary of State's office in terms of what has happened these last four years a lot of the work that will probably need to be done is just rebuilding the department and I don't know mm-hmm. you know and again so the sort of lofty ideals about American foreign policy and other sort of things may have to sort of take a back seat for a, a couple of years to rebuild morale, to sort of, uh, you know, fill positions that have been um, emptied out by this administration who, you know, and again, I think in general, the Republican sort of agenda is less about governance and more about sort of dismantling. And so there's a lot of work. And, and if Senator Murphy has an interest in rebuilding the Secretary of State's sort of office and, and, and the career diplomats and others, um, then, you know, go for it. But I imagine if he's looking at his long-term sort of goal, perhaps to become president. And also, I recently this summer read his book on um, violence, and I think he still has a lot of work to do around gun control and around issues around violence, which is a real passion of his. So I think he's got a lot of other work to do before he sort of steps into a place where he can sort of step into that kind of a role. That's Balasi Ku, Associate Professor of Politics and Government at the University of Hartford here on The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. Also with us, Emily Munson, Regional Correspondent for Hearst Newspapers based in Washington, D.C., and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up, a key vote is scheduled for tomorrow in the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, and Connecticut's other senator has been involved in that debate. We'll hear more right after this short break. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. On our panel today, Emily Munson, regional correspondent for Hearst Newspapers, based in D.C., Balasi Ku, associate professor of politics and government at the University of Hartford, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Now, Thursday is a big news day. Besides the second and final presidential debate, the Senate Judiciary Committee is expected to vote on the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court. The committee has the votes to move her nomination to the full Senate, which could vote on her nomination next Monday. Emily, you've been covering this. Uh, Does this seem like a a done deal in terms of uh, what we're going to see at the Judiciary Committee meeting tomorrow? It it is definitely certain that the committee will pass her nomination um, from everything we've seen so far. As you pointed out, the committee does have the votes and Republicans are intent on moving forward on this before the election. But Uh, I wouldn't expect Democrats to just roll over easy on this. As we've seen from the criticisms of Senator Dianne Feinstein, who was um, criticized from people on the left for being too friendly with Chairman Lindsey Graham, um, Democrats want to see the senator, the Democratic senators on the committee putting up a fight here, even though they have few tools to actually stall the proceedings. Um, And we saw Senator Blumenthal last Mm -hmm. week deploy one of these tactics um, after CNN uh, revealed that there were additional speeches that nominee Amy Coney Barrett had not included 
in her Senate disclosures to the committee, um, Blumenthal moved that the committee should indefinitely postpone their proceedings. Now, obviously, Republicans were never going to agree to that, but it prompted about two hours of debate within the committee um, with both sides giving speeches about um, this nomination, as well as the direction of the Senate more broadly and um, the polarization of that body. So I would expect additional procedural moves from Democrats to try to slow the process and to show that they're not going to go down easy on this. Because at this point, um, Democrats' goal is to to message um, to the electorate that this is not right in their point of view to be holding this vote so close to the election. Um, and also a key message for them is they believe the nominee um, is going to be devastating to health care. They believe she will um, rule with conservatives on the court to overturn the ACA. So they'll be hammering those two messages in the proceedings um, tomorrow, most likely. And Colin, it's also problematic uh, in the view of many Democrats that when we have the president linking her confirmation uh, in terms of having nine justices in case of a contested White House race, so the question becomes, why try to get this done before the election? Right. Um, well, I, I think the, the question of why, why has it now been answered? You just mm -hmm. answered it. Um, so, yeah, the question then becomes, is there a basis to push for a recusal? Um, th there does appear to be. Um, I would have just off the top of my head thought recusal would be a hard thing to arrive at. There actually is a precedent. precedent. Uh, it's called Caperton versus 18 Massey Coal Company. Uh, it was a 5-4 debate uh, case, I believe, in 2009. And in the majority opinion, Penn by then Anthony Kennedy, Justice Anthony Kennedy, uh, the court reasoned that the mere appearance of bias was enough to require a justice's recusal from a case. I mean, who knows? Uh, but you could certainly make that argument. Somebody will make that, that argument. Uh, I mean, there'll be an awful lot of lawyering that goes on if, in fact, the election is contested, if, in fact, it gets all the way to the Supreme Court. I will say that I, I think uh, Amy Coney Barrett has so far survived this process pretty well. Uh, and, and in fact, Gallup, which takes uh, snapshots of the process along the way every time, has her at 5146, 51% of the American public now favor seating her. Uh, I, I would like to just point to an odd little thing here that may not mean anything, but it's worth thinking about. There's a weird thing about this Gallup poll, which is, so they do this every time, and they, they do it multiple times during the process. So this would be kind of the last sampling. Inevitably, the, the part of the public that doesn't have an opinion is somewhere around 20, 23%, something like the, that. I mean, you know, without much variation, and, and if it does anything else, it goes higher. It goes up to 30% of the American public has no opinion. The percentage of the American public that has no opinion about the seating of Justice Amy Coney Barrett is 3% right now. There's never been a number close to that since they started doing this. So, People have really chosen sides over the course uh, of this process and are much more engaged in it than they were, for example, in Justice Thomas's confirmation, which probably was, you know, one of the most high profile ones ever. So, you know, I'm, uh, but ultimately the process has worked to her favor. She's managed to normalize herself enough so that a slender majority of respondents favor seating her.
Do you agree, Emily? And then in terms of uh, Republicans, uh, Senate Republicans up for reelection, how will this issue play out at the polls? Yeah, I think bringing up the, the election is is spot on there. For vulnerable Republicans, um, this appears to be a sensitive topic. Um, polling shows that um, a good chunk of the American electorate thinks that it would have been proper to wait to see to justice until after the election. So for Republicans who are already facing tough races, who are already feeling the drag of a Trump unpopular Trump presidency on their race, this could be another issue dragging them down. And I believe in part, that's why we're also seeing Republicans simultaneously bringing their COVID relief bills to the floor so that they can attempt to change the narrative and portray themselves as the party that's trying to deliver COVID relief while the Democrats are blocking that. Um, so it's definitely um, sensitive for Republicans. Uh, Chairman Lindsey Graham, who is in a very tough fight for his seat, it's rated a toss up um, against Democrat Jamie Harrison, who has fundraised enormous sums recently um, in his race against him. Um, this is a major factor in that election down in South Carolina. And as it, it's playing out in other close to toss up races as well. Uh, Bilal, I mentioned uh, the presidential election earlier with Colin, but you know, I was thinking if if Amy Coney Barrett um, is uh, if she gets the full vote uh, approved uh, by the Senate um, starting Monday, you know how quickly she could be sworn in, and there are other cases involving voter rights in other states that she could potentially be weighing in on. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just no way I can imagine that she will recuse herself from any of the sort of battles that may occur after the election happens if, um, you know, if the tea leaves can be read correctly. Republicans are prepared to fight this out. I mean, the president is prepared to fight this out until they can get their way to the U.S. Supreme Court to have them decide on a wide range of issues from counting ballots to you, you name it, they've got lawsuits, you know, challenging and will continue to do that as a strategy. I think the thing that really stands out to me and, and both Emily and Colin have sort of summarized a lot of the particulars quite well, but the thing that really stands out to me and is the way in which you cannot separate um, where things are at with her nomination to the court and the efforts on the part on the part of Mitch McConnell to submit his legacy. Um, and, you know, clearly, you know, McConnell going back to the Obama years made a decision along with others that they were going to stack the courts, that they were going to use the Federalist Society and every sort of strategy that they can use to prevent Democrats from um, appointing people to the court. And what's been amazing during the Obama years and what's been especially amazing has been the willingness to, you know, say we're not going to even try to find people where we can at least get some consensus on and get some Democrats who would vote in support of them, that they have gone with as far right as they can get. They have gone with young justices, even inexperienced justices. I think there was one that he appointed who was in her early 30s and never tried a case, et cetera, and, and given a lifetime appointment. I mean, the list just sort of goes on and on. And to me, that's what's extraordinary. And what will be interesting is to see how, as we come out of this, if the Democrats are able to take control, 
Will they respond in kind? Will they attempt, for example, to add, add justices to mm -hmm. the Supreme Court to stack it in a way that Roosevelt tried to do, which received pushback from Democrats when he attempted to do that? Um, and so, and will they, you know, try to expand the number of sort of lower federal court judges in order to try to balance the system in a way that it's really not balanced right now? So the courts are going to be intriguing, um, an intriguing institution to watch over the next few years because of, you know, not just only Barrett's appointment, which I think is inevitable, but also what has been going on for about the last five or six years with the federal court system. Can I just interject one quick little historical point, because this is sort of when things were different. So in 1956, uh, Eisenhower uh, had uh, uh, an opening on the court about two months before the election. What he did was to do a recess appointment of William Brennan. William Brennan was a Democrat. Uh, Eisenhower had his eye on the election, which he thought he could win. Uh, but he, he thought he could win it even better if he could get some Catholic Democrats uh, to vote for him. So <laughs> so he does a recess appointment of Brennan. You know, if Stevenson had won, we don't don't know whether uh, the, he would have kept Brennan or not, but as a recess appointment, it had to be renewed in January, which is exactly what happened. And it all worked out great. But I mean, you can do something like that if you think you can win the election. Trump, I think, is playing a different game. He's thinking he's going to lose the vote and probably be down, uh, you know, low enough in the Electoral College that he's going to have to fight this out in the courts. Uh, so, I mean, that probably wasn't an option for him <laughs> to do it. Just interesting. It was a sort of smarter and more genteel time where everybody kind of <laughs> said, OK, well, why don't we do that? <laughs> yeah, speaking of, of last week when the uh, hearings were broadcast on our station, uh, there was a, uh, something that happened to Congresswoman Johanna Hayes uh, that was really disturbing. Uh, she, like many politicians holding these online Zoom meetings uh, to meet with constituents, obviously she's up for re-election. But during uh, that uh, meeting, uh, there were people that were calling her the N-word. They were typing racist messages on the forum. And uh, Representative Hayes was very candid about this experience and how it impacted her. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, Emily, uh, when we hear this happened to Representative Hayes, you brought up to us that this also happened during the first district uh, debate between uh, John Larson and his challenger, Mary Fay, someone, um, you know, attacking uh, Mary Fay for being gay. Is this becoming the norm? Why has it become so nasty? Um. That's a good question. I, and I just want to bring up a clarification about the first district event. So that was um, Monday night when mm -hmm. um, Congressman Larson, Republican Mary Fay, and the Green Party candidate um, Tom McCormick debated. And there were comments um, left in the Zoom chat by some anonymous person um, that were going after all three of them. Mm -hmm. um, they were, many of the comments were sexual in nature and very profane. The N word was used. And also um, Ms. Faye told me that uh, some of them included violent threats. So some of them were definitely directed at Mary Faye, um, but some of them appeared directed at the group and even at the moderator. And, um, you know, I spoke to, um, Mary Fay about it yesterday. She told me that she just felt this was very hateful speech, not something that anyone should have to go through. And and I asked her um, about the experience of Representative Hayes and if she felt that there was a commonality here. 
Now, obviously, um, in this moment with the pandemic, everyone is using these online platforms more than we ever have before. So the opportunity is there, whereas it wasn't previously. And in the case of um, the first uh, district debate on Monday night, um, the the individual or individuals who were perpetrating this um, were not participants in the Zoom. And so um, I spoke to the uh, TV broadcaster who was monitoring the Zoom and the chat at the time. And she told me that she believed it was a, a hacker, someone from the outside who was using technology to infiltrate this meeting as opposed to an active participant of the meeting. And that was a difference with the experience of mm -hmm. Representative Hayes, who um, my understanding was uh, these were participants who had joined the meeting and started making these comments and then had to be um, actively removed. Um, for in both situations, um, disgusting language was used and it's horrible that um, this kind of speech is perpetrating um, political events in Connecticut. Um, and, and I wonder, you know, um, if there's more that Zoom can do to, to respond or, or other platforms to try to enhance the security. But, you know, really it's, it's perhaps more of a, a signal of where we are in our um, civil discourse in the country mm -hmm. right now. Uh, Bilal, uh, Representative Hayes uh, was very candid in an essay after uh, that uh, Zoom bombing, uh, so to speak, uh, where she talks about the cumulative effects of racism and how black women are expected to press on to ignore this behavior. I wanted right. you to, to react to um, you know, that essay and the fact that she made it very public that this happened. People should know. Right. I mean, certainly for um, Representative Hayes, this was a devastating moment and you know just as you know speaking as a an african-american who you know has a you know somewhat public profile and you know i've written letters to the editor sometimes i've actually gotten responses from people who were angry were angry about something that i said but i've never had to encounter i've never had to encounter anything like she had to encounter and something that other women of color all across the country who are running for public office, um, you know, and, and that, for that matter, in all walks of life have to experience at some point or another. I remember when I, you know, read the piece and then I shared it with some friends who are women, they shared it widely and immediately, and they immediately connected to that experience in terms of some things that overt, but also some things far um, more covert, but None, no, but not less devastating to them in terms of having that experience. And I think Miss um, Miss Hayes, you know, really spoke to a lot of people. She spoke to me um, as an African American male, but I think she, in particular, spoke to lots of women of color who who have those kinds of experiences um, out here. And it's just really um, unfortunate that um, there are still people out there, as she you know, ended the piece with saying that no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you've accomplished in terms of your education, your position in society, whether you're a member of Congress or whether you're even the president of the United States, for a, not for a very significant portion of the American public, you're still the N-word, as she put it. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it is a reality that I think we all live with, um, 
that we try to work against to try to defeat racism and white supremacy in our society. But it's an ugly reality that's there and something that far too many of us have to experience and have to deal with. I need to head to break, but I should note that Hayes Challenger, 5th Congressional District, for the 5th Congressional District seat, David X. Sullivan wrote that it's appalling that a bigoted coward would direct insults at Congresswoman Hayes. Uh, this is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You heard Bilal Siku, Emily Munson, and Colin McEnroe here. After the break, we're going to talk about the rise in COVID-19 cases. Is this the beginning of the second wave in our state? More after the break. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The month of October is almost done. And on Tuesday, Governor Lamont said the state's positivity rate has hit 3%. Colin, remind us what this means. And are you surprised that the state is heading in the wrong direction? Yeah, so the positivity rate is uh, the number of um, the percentage of people who test positive from the group tested. It's actually a somewhat controversial thing, too, because there are some questions about whether they count um, uh, uh, all the tests or all the patients, because sometimes patients over the course of the week or or at least testees will be tested two or three times over the course of the week. Do you count all of those? Anyway, that's geeky. But no, I'm not that surprised it's up to 3%. It's alarming. It should worry us. I mean, it's, it's not a high rate. It's not a Wisconsin or a South Dakota rate. South Dakota is like off the charts right now. Uh, I, one other thing I would just quickly say about testing, there's a myth promulgated by guess who, the president of the United States, um, <laughs> that if you test more, your rate's going to go up. Um, typically, if you test more, your rate will go down. Uh, if it doesn't go down, if you test a lot more and your rate doesn't go down, you have a real problem with uncontrolled spread. But usually a higher volume of testing will make your, your percentage rate go down. Um, Connecticut, I think, is kind of a, kind of has a, a middle of the pack kind of uh, testing rate. Um, and, and the other thing I want to just quickly say, just to build on the end of the last conversation, you know, Johanna Hayes did the same thing with COVID that she did with racism, which is go public about it and talk about how it felt. And in a way that President Trump was not. She was 100% transparent about her COVID case. She had a little handwritten diary, which she'd post to Twitter. Uh, I thought that was a, a tremendous service. But yeah, I mean, here in Connecticut, we've we've got to get serious uh, about it. We've been very serious about it all along. But the fact that it's tracking in this direction, that the rolling seven-day average is going to go up and up and up, uh, it means that that something's wrong right now. What do you think that that is? I mean, you've been talking about uh, COVID uh, every week on your show, talking to experts and epidemiologists about this public health crisis. We know that there's this narrative out there where people don't want to wear masks and they think that this is all a, a ruse by the government. And so when we think about cases going up in Connecticut, are is it part of quarantine fatigue? People are tired of making doing these things that public health officials say are important to keep the spread low? Well, yes. I mean, the president said people are tired of the virus. Unfortunately, the virus is not tired of us. Uh, and, um, I, I, you know, I think you can kind of point to a couple of things. Uh, one of them is school reopening. I mean, that's not a big mystery. But, you know, it's, it is interesting, not dispositive, but interesting that New Haven had the most cautious approach on school opening. And, and they have been able to hold their rate down much better than other Connecticut cities. You know, the, they, their whole philosophy was we'll start 
100% distance and will move towards some kind of reopening as opposed to starting with some kind of reopening that includes in-person learning and then clamping down on it when the numbers go up. So, you know, I think schools are a part of it. And then the other theory du jour is, and Deborah Burks mentioned it when she was here in Connecticut last week, um, that what's happening now is that people are letting their guard down with people they know. It's not mm-hmm. so much, you know, that they're careless when they're out in public or, you know, if they're at some kind of large outdoor event or something. They'll still, at least around here, if it's not a Trump rally, they'll keep their masks on. Um, it's more the per- the people you invite into your home or you go into their home and they're not part of your quarantine bubble you know they're not part of your bubble at all but you know them well enough so that you sort of feel like ah well we're all here we've had a couple of glasses of wine let's take our masks off the the theory right now is that some of those more intimate gatherings are where the spread is starting Mm. what does that mean as we see colder weather and people staying indoors more colin well, I mean, I, I think one thing that it means is Thanksgiving is now a very scary prospect, right? You're going to have people traveling uh, and you're going to have people gathering who haven't been bubbled t- together. They're they're all your family members, <laughs> uh, but, you know, you haven't actually been practicing social distancing with them. So, I mean, that's a, a scary prospect. Yeah, people are going to go indoors more and there is going to be more spread. I feel like I just shouldn't be Mr. Gloom and Doom. So let me just say the good news is <laughs> that people are showing up at hospitals less sick than they were at the onset of this pandemic. And the death rate from these hospitalizations is going down, even as a national number, it's going down. Clinicians are figuring out how to handle these cases better than they knew back in March and April. I mean, it's going way down. So our ability to treat the disease is significant better. That doesn't mean you should be careless about getting the disease, because even if it doesn't kill you, it can really hurt you with brain fog, heart damage, uh, you know, ground glass, opacities in your lungs, permanent pain, fatigue that doesn't go away. I mean, it's not a fun disease to have, even if it doesn't kill you. But we are getting smarter at clinical treatment. Well, that's at least uh, good to hear. Uh, We should uh, end on our feats of strength and airing of grievances. Uh, Emily, we've got like three minutes, so if you want to go quickly. Uh, My airing of grievances is how dark it is in the morning these days. I just can't (laughs) wake up. So I am actually looking forward to getting some more sunlight in the morning. (laughs) That is true. Uh, Bilal. Sure. My feat of strength is the American people. Over the past seven months, millions of them have lost their jobs and health insurance sharp increase in food and housing insecurity, millions of people thrown into poverty, tens of thousands of small businesses closed. And of course, you know, colonists just summarized, over 200,000 Americans have lost their lives due to COVID-19. You know, but on the other hand, you know, some people are doing really well during this period. In fact, if you were a billionaire, you've actually gotten richer. Americans for tax fairness has reported about a $930 billion increase in net wealth for the wealthiest 644 uh, families in the, in the countries. And so, um, and of course, which has been good for Connecticut coffers, which were fearing a budget deficit, deficit crisis, um, and that money has flowed in. And so my feat of strength is to the American people who have survived this. And I, you know, the villains who have been getting rich off of it during this pandemic is uh, the people I don't like. And Colin. 
I'll go real fast. Torrington special education attorney uh, Lisa Vincent lost her case in federal court, uh, which she tried to get a, a preliminary injunction injunction against Ned Lamont and Susan Bicewitz for having mask mandates. Uh, the judge threw out her argument. I consider that a feat of strength. And I want to throw out a feat of strength to all the town clerks in the state of Connecticut, juggling the many absentee ballots that are coming back uh, to their offices. Uh, let's hope that uh, things go well on Election Day. We can hope, can't we? I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks so much to our panelists today, Colin McEnroe, Emily Munson from Hearst Newspapers and Bilal Siku. Always a pleasure to hear from all of you. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back next week. Thank you.